0: Hey y'all, Eve's here. We're doubling up today with two events in history. On with the show. Welcome to This Day in History class. I'm Eves, and it's the last day of March, which means it's also the last day of Women's History Month. And this month we've brought on a lot of special guests to celebrate Women's History Month, and today we'll be doing the same. We'll be talking about the Motion Picture Production Code, which is also known as the Hays Code, and that was ratified on March 31st, 1930. The Hays Code was this set of guidelines that subjected American films to moral censorship. And you might be thinking, what does that have to do with the celebration of Women's History? But our guest today, Dr. Nora Gilbert, has shown that censorship did have benefits for women. Hi, Nora. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm good. Good. So um, I'm really, really excited to talk to you today. I honestly never thought, never thought about this angle to the Hayes Code or to censorship in general until I saw your work. So I'm just really looking awesome. forward to what you have to say. So if you could just start off by briefly breaking down what exactly the motion picture production code is and what it did. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: So a lot of people talk about pre-code Hollywood and post-code Hollywood. And what they usually are meaning by that is a breaking point that happened in 1934 when a guy named Joseph Breen came and took over what had already been in place for four years by that point, which was the production code. Um, And he was the one who really enforced it in a new way. And a lot of people think of that as the time when the code really got its teeth. But originally back in 1930, this was something that came about because the motion picture industry did not want to have to deal with legal censorship so censorship at the state and local levels where people could just watch a movie and say we're not going to screen it we, we censor it we're going to take out this scene we're going to take out these words and legally people could do that pretty easily in 1930 because Motion pictures were not considered to be covered under the First Amendment because they had been ruled in one thousand nine hundred and fifteen that Hollywood is just a big business and it 's not really art, so we don 't have to protect it in the same way that um, other kinds of artists were protected so they could censor anything they wanted so the, the Hollywood producers and filmmakers said, "What are we going to do to avoid this because there were a lot of protest groups that were complaining, especially in the 1920s during the kind of a scandalous flapper era kind of, you know, prohibition era. But when things were kind of in silent pictures, were getting kind of, uh, you know, there were naked bodies on the screen. There was a lot of illicit sex going on on screen and a lot of drinking. And they didn't like that during prohibition. So they wanted to, um, find a way for the movies to be made more socially acceptable and more financially lucrative. Because another thing to point out is that the stock market crash of course happens in 1929 and it's right after that, that the first production code um, is composed and put into place because they're really trying to uh, appease their New York wall street backers and say, we're going to make movies as financially lucrative as possible because we'll make them so they're safe for everyone. So everyone can go see these movies. So in 1930, this group of a few Catholic men got together and they said, we're going to make this list. And it's a very comprehensive list. It has a bunch of, you know, it has its general principles and then its particular applications, and then just pages and pages of kind of defending uh why they are objecting to the things they are. And it's very, you know, broad ranging. and very specific about certain things, but then also just talks in lofty terms about how they're going to save movies for America. And so that was kind of how it got started. And it really, there were, there were different audiences that it wanted to protect. It very specifically said it wanted to protect the young. So it was very afraid that young moviegoers would go and they would see these objectionable things. It was very, it explicitly said that it cared about Protecting people from small communities as opposed to big cities. So back then, they were very sure that the rural folks would get more corrupted by things than people who were in urban centers, who are more sophisticated. Is the language <laughs> used? And it doesn't say anything about wanting to protect women explicitly. But my argument is that that's really underpinning a lot of what they're doing in the code. They're very worried that women, there was a conception at the time that women were the main uh, bulk of moviegoers and that they were the ones who were watching this stuff and getting corrupted by this stuff. And so a lot of the, um, the specific things that they forbid there was nothing that was specifically forbidden about men, but there were things like, they said, you know, dances with movement of the breasts is forbidden to be seen on screen or um, the sale of women or a woman selling her virtue is to be forbidden. So it was clear in some of the specific things they did that they were worried more about how women were being portrayed and what female audiences would be getting than they were worried about men. And the one quote that I jotted down that I think is uh, exemplifies what people were really thinking at the time, even though it wasn't actually put into the code is there is this um, Chicago uh, local film censor whose name is unbelievably Major Medalist Lusolus Cicero Funkhauser. Wow. Sounds like such a made-up name, but this (laughs) is his name. And his quote, is: he says, in 1917, he says his censorship policy is to eliminate scenes that, quote, the male sex could... but that might cause women to brood and lose their reason. Mm. So he's worried that women will just explode if they see this stuff on screen. And a lot of people really were worried about that, even though that's not really written in the production code in the same way. So that was a very long answer. But (laughs) those
0: are all things that led up to the code being the way it was. Yeah, so there's a ton of documentation out there about how that censorship kind of stifled Expression. And mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. as you pointed out, the censor was not necessarily the enemy of the artist, but they mm-hmm. kind of worked together with the artist to create this subtext. Yeah. So beyond mm-hmm. that argument that the Hayes Code restricted women's expression, what role did it play for, you know, the benefit of women in film or maybe feminism?
1: Right. So, I mean, one thing about feminism is that it has all these, uh, you know, different perspectives, of course, and different strands And you can be a feminist with very different attitudes towards, say, sexuality. And so there's certainly some feminists would say the more that you're trying to not show female sexuality, that's stifling and that's, you know, hindering um, women's freedom, which I can certainly see that standpoint as well. But another standpoint is that women are very because they're so sexualized, they're objectified on screen. And so, a very famous uh, piece of film feminist film criticism by Laura Mulvey from the 1970s says that, you know, the cinema is has is all about the male gaze, and it's objectifying to women, and women are just kind of, you know, these sexual objects to be consumed by men. So in terms of that strain of feminism, I would say that interestingly, censorship, it was not done in the name of uh, making women more empowered by any means. It was created by men, I think for men. But what it did was it kind of tried to stifle some of the overt um, objectification and sexualization of women in terms of their trying to not just be a bunch of bodies on screen. And the stuff that you see in pre-code Hollywood, I mean, so much of it is wonderful and exciting and sexy in many ways. But it also is like, if you think of like the Busby Berkeley um, musicals that are just a bunch of like women's bodies, just like disembodied these legs that look like a kaleidoscope going around. And this was uh, during the years before the code was enforced, women were so hyperbolically sexualized that I think that when the code came around, it had to make sex into something else. And it didn't want to lose its sex appeal for audiences because it still knew that sex sold. But what it did in in the post-code years, by which I mean post-1934, is that we then started having this genre of films that came about where women's sexuality was through their talking and their witty banter the screwball comedy the romantic comedies of the age and and women were kind of made to be very intelligent and sexual in a way that was through their you know they were desirable through um, their brains instead of their bodies you might be able to say and so there was a way in which the films that came directly after the code um started to you know expand what women's purview was in terms of their you know intellectual capacities on screen. Not that that hadn't always been. I'm not saying that when women were sexualized, they were unintelligent, but just that there was a different way that it was the, the, the uh, expression was happening. And so in general, my feeling is, is that censorship forces the artist to be more subtle and more subversive and get their points across in ways that are specifically supposed to be sophisticated. I use that word in quotes because that's what the code uh, administrators use that term a lot to say. We want it to be sophisticated material so that only some parts of the audience will get it. And they thought that that meant adults versus children. They thought that that meant men would get it and women wouldn't. But the irony is, is that, you know, women found a lot of pleasure in these movies. And obviously women were getting a lot of the subtext as well and finding it very pleasurable to watch movies in that way. I guess and I would also say that uh so one thing that the censorship worked very well at is that it did a good job of squelching certain voices, right? Um trying to make uh more radicalized voices not be heard. But in that same tone, you could get people were starting to um find ways to get around uh, the way that they were being officially told to, to voice things. So for example, women directors, there weren't too many in the classical Hollywood film era. There was Lois Weber, who was one of the most important film directors in the silent era. And then you had Dorothy Arzner, and eventually you had like Ida Lupino. But there were a lot of uh, women who were not able to direct because it was just kind of very male f- playing field. But writing was a very different thing. And women writers could get their voices in often on uncredited in ways. And so there are a lot of these films that, that seem like they're being completely produced by men. They're directed by men, officially written by men, sometimes uh, and produced by men. But women's voices were able to make their way in there. And the other way was through the actresses themselves. And that's kind of the project I'm working on right now is thinking about how the Hollywood actress herself as an icon, as an idea, changed the way that women thought about themselves In um, their own lives. So the fact that women were so strong and successful and having these visible careers in a way that had never really happened before. The Hollywood actress during this time period, and from the very beginning of Hollywood, the actress reigned supreme. So Mary Pickford was the first uh, major Hollywood movie star in the 1910s. And she really was far more successful and visible and everyone obsessed over her more than people like Charlie Chaplin, who we talk more about today. Um, So uh, Hollywood itself, Was always dominated by men, but the women were the ones who got far more kind of press time and people were more obsessed with them. And I think it's because the idea of a woman with that much, you know, visible power and she had, you know, she was disempowered in certain ways because as a studio actress, she had to do whatever her bosses told her to some extent, though many women fought against that and became independent contract players. But she also was the one that was, you know, on all the movie magazine covers and was the one that everyone talked about. And so the way that um, the film's postcode, how that started to play out is that that was the time period where more women, more female actresses, they were starting to realize that the movie studios needed them. And so you had actresses like Carol Lombard and Hans Bennett and all these people who were stepping away from their contracts and saying, I want to run things the way I want to. Betty Davis fighting very hard. So the coupling of the content of the movie is shifting to make female characters stronger, and the actresses themselves are starting to play more and more of kind of a rebellious role in um, the kind of sexual political landscape of America. The, those coupled together meant that in the post-code years, that was when some of the most exciting kind of developments for uh, the intersection of Hollywood and feminism started to happen.
0: So I'm wondering, was that something that moviegoers recognized at the time? Did they see that all these changes were happening behind the scenes? Or was that something that people in the industry were kind of only in the know of? Well, it was something that the movie industry wanted very much to tout. They wanted to announce
1: that they were censoring things. They wanted to make it clear that they were trying to purify these uh, films to make them safer for America, because it actually, I should point out another role that women had in censorship is that even though it was this small, small cohort of Catholic men who did the writing of the production code, it was really the women who were parts of like these uh, the, the women's clubs. They were called like the Federation of Women's Clubs. And there were like 30 million members at, at the high point of these clubs. And they were really some of the people who were protesting The obscenity and the depravity of films during the 1920s, some people thought that they were doing this for the women, that they were trying to protect the women. At the same time, um, there were articles written, there's one from 1931, the front page of Variety that's called Dirt Craze Due to Women, uh, where it talks about women love dirt, nothing shocks them the badder the better. Women who make up the bulk of the picture audiences are also the majority of readers of the tabloids, scandal sheets, flashy magazines, and erotic books. It is to cater to them all the hot stuff of the present day is turned out. So that's what the perception was during the, right, as the code is being implemented. So when it was implemented, they wanted to say to everyone to make all those women's club members who were protesting, they wanted to say, We are censoring now and things are gonna be different but then they also wanted to make all those women who they thought were dirt crazed and wanted to watch sexy material they wanted to make them happy so it was kind of like i think people were very aware that the motion picture industry was trying to change in certain ways but then they'd go to the theaters and they would see certainly in the what we call the pre-code years between 1930 and 1934 they'd see that things were getting all the more racy and exciting to them and then in the post-code years i think that they were going to the theaters and very aware like what is being allowed be shown to me and what isn't. And it forced them to become, I think, very savvy uh, moviegoers so that people were always trying to read sexual material into things that, you know, all the more. This is kind of the uh, Foucauldian concept. Michel Foucault, this French theorist who says that. Don't think of the Victorian era as this prudish era. This was, in fact, when people were obsessed with talking about sex because it was forbidden. As soon as something is forbidden, it's more exciting. And then you want to talk about it all the more. And I would say the same thing happened after The Code, is that these movies came out and people were like thinking constantly, where is the sexuality? Where is the forbidden subtext in these films? And it made them more pleasurable in certain ways. So there's something that's just exciting about watching something that you think you're getting that you shouldn't be getting, you know? And I think that that's the kind of reading practices, particularly for women, that emerged in the post-code era.
0: Is there any person, any woman or film that you could point to that really illustrates how the Hayes Code era censorship encouraged, like, innovation or expressiveness in cinema? Yeah,
1: I mean, I guess in general, I would say the genre of um, what we call now the screwball comedy, or more broadly, the romantic comedy. The reason why I look to this genre in particular is because it's the one where, I mean, there's some feminist critics that point out that in a lot of these films, women are strong and empowered for most of the film. And then the very last few minutes, we have to kind of demobilize them in some way or make them lose their voice. And I do agree with that reading. But I also think that, you know, one of the things the production code did is it said, what really matters is how the movie turns out. Like you can do controversial stuff in the course of it, but you have to wind up with a very kind of conventional conservative message that the woman remains in the home and things like that. But I also think that everyone knew that at the time, going back to your last question, that everybody uh, was aware of the convention, that the ending had to feel a certain way. But if you just, you know, focused on the center of the film or the majority of the film, then you could get these messages that were much more subversive or um, kind of progressive. And so uh, as a full genre, I would say, if you look at the screwball comedy, these women characters in it, they are so much more kind of agentive and active, and they're the ones who are controlling the plot, controlling the atmosphere. They're the ones who are smarter than the men usually, and they're outwitting them. And this was something that was relatively new, and that the idea that uh, women could be this much in control of their own identities and their own sexuality, and just, again, going back to sex as a trope that really gets Treated differently in the postcode era in a way that a lot of women found to be empowering to them. So that uh, you know, actresses like uh, Catherine Hepburn and uh, Barbara Stanwyck and Carol Lombard and Irene Dunn, These were actresses where the reason they were so popular with female audiences is because women felt like they were able to achieve the things that they wanted to achieve in their own lives. But through these stories that were often very you know kind of their' slapstick comedy, there's a lot of falling and silliness but the message the undergirding message of them is that you know women really can and should be in a you know more prominent place in the world
0: do you have any favorite scene or particular moment that just really stands out to you that you've seen from that era of films that you like go back to when you're thinking about censorship and how it was subverted
1: um not to put uh, you on the spot see. or
0: anything. I know, I tried to, to put you on the spot a
1: particular scene. But only if you um, if you have one. Yeah. I mean one scene that highlights the thing I was talking about where it's, uh where sexuality feels more desirable because it's forbidden I don't know if that's quite the, I mean, it's not the female empowerment thing, but the scene that that I often think of that embodies what a code censorship did is from It Happened One Night, which stars Clark Gable and Claudette Colbert, which happened, is filmed right in at the moment that Joseph Green takes over, so the code is now being formalized in a new way. And the plot of it is is that they're on the road together, they are not married, she's married someone else, she's love with someone, and he's the reporter who's going to get a story about it. But of course, they're falling in love, and there's a lot of witty banter between them. But um, there's a scene where they're both staying in a hotel room together, and that would be very shocking for the time period. And so, the way that he makes this okay is that he hangs a blanket in the middle on a rope in the middle of their room, and he says, All right, now I Can't see anything, so you're fine. And so she starts like getting undressed, and then she just starts throwing, you know, her stockings and her clothes over the top of it to hang it as she's going to put on her pajamas. And he gets so he's like, well, now all I'm doing, of course, is imagining you on the other side, (laughs) naked. And so the idea that you put up a, a wall, you put up a barrier, you try to hide what's on the other side. And it makes people think about it all the more, but Mm. be able to use their own imaginations in a way that is, you know, very stimulating and also requires more of the viewer. And it puts more of the sexuality into your mind in ways that, I mean, you could say that that makes you more kind of pervy, that you're trying to think about what's over there, but also (laughs) makes it so the sex is more about uh, the viewer instead of what's on the screen. And I think for women in particular, that could feel... Like a way that they could, in this time when it was considered so taboo for them to have overt sexual desires and opinions, they could watch these movies and let it kind of play out in their own imaginative spaces in a way that uh, felt really good to them.
0: That is really smart. I wouldn't have thought of that scene like that. It's like they were doing things that were meta before meta was the huge thing to do in film. But I, right, right. it's so cool to to think of it this way because now I'm going to go back and look at movies in such a different light because I guess... I always think of censorship as this kind of thing to rally around as a negative thing, as a bad thing. Like there's this shadowy cabal of like overlords who are telling you what you can and what you can't put in this. And it's bad Uh for me as an artist or for that person as an artist. And yeah, this just really puts things into a different light. So those are all the questions that I have. But if you have anything that you want to add, feel free to. I mean, yeah, no,
1: the, what you were just saying is exactly what I'm trying to get at is the idea that, I mean, both the censors often were not trying as hard as we thought to, to block anything. They just wanted to make sure that it passed certain people's lips they were okay with uh, movies talking to people in different uh, ways, but also the fact that artists are smart and artists. Censorship doesn't just squelch people. I mean, of course, in some ways, censorship can when it's, you know, legalized and people are, you know, their voices are silenced in very real ways. But in places where we have, you know, foundational levels of freedom of speech, sometimes censorship instead works to motivate the artist and inspire the artist in ways that I think we
0: don't think enough about. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much for talking about this today. It's been a real pleasure.
1: All right. Well, it's fun to talk to you. You too. No problem. (laughs) Bye. bye
0: Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode today. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you enjoyed all of the interviews that we've done for Women's History Month. You can let us know how you felt about them at TDIHC Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We'll see you here in the same place tomorrow. A quick content warning before we start the show, this episode contains mention of sex work. Hey everyone, I'm Eves, and welcome to this day in history class, a show that brings you a little slice of history every day. The day was March 31st, 1878. Boxer Jack Johnson was born. Johnson went on to become the first African-American world heavyweight boxing champion. Johnson was born in Galveston, Texas. His parents, Henry and Tina Johnson, were both formerly enslaved and had blue-collar jobs. Jack was the third of nine children, five of whom reached adulthood. He grew up in a racially mixed neighborhood and went through five years of school. After Jack left school, he took a series of jobs. Throughout this time, he participated in fights and built up his self-defense skills. It was in Dallas that Johnson was encouraged to train as a boxer. Back in Galveston, he took on more jobs and saved up enough money to buy a pair of boxing gloves. He moved from street fights to taking part in loosely organized boxing bouts. Johnson began traveling across the country to fight in the late 1890s, and it was during this time that he became a professional boxer. He gained a reputation as a formidable heavyweight and became known as the Galveston Giant. But he was limited to fighting on the black boxing circuit, which meant that he got less money and could not fight in world championship matches. Throughout his boxing career, he supplemented his income by taking speaking engagements as well as singing, dancing, and playing instruments on the vaudeville circuit. Johnson won his first title when he beat Denver Ed Martin for the unofficial World Colored Heavyweight Championship in 1903. The press urged James Jeffries, the reigning white heavyweight champion, to take on Johnson, but Jeffries refused to fight a black man. Once Jeffries retired, Johnson pursued a fight with the new champion, Tommy Burns. Burns agreed to the fight after he was offered $30,000 to take it. In December of 1908, Johnson and Burns went up against each other. The fight lasted 14 rounds before the police broke it up as Johnson had beaten Burns badly. Johnson was declared the winner. His win upset a lot of white America, and the search for a white boxer who could beat Johnson began. Novelist Jack London coined the term Great White Hope to describe the man who would fulfill this role. So in 1910, James Jeffries came out of retirement for the fight he had previously refused. The press intensified tensions around the fight by claiming that a Johnson win might lead Black people to riot. Johnson won in the 15th round when Jeffries threw in the towel before an inevitable knockout happened. Race riots did erupt in cities across the US in the aftermath of the match. Johnson continued to fight professionally into the 1930s and did exhibition matches after that. But beyond his career, his personal life was also riddled with controversy. He was married to and in relationships with several white women at a time when interracial relationships were taboo. He was charged with violating the Mann Act after he was accused of transporting a white sex worker across state lines. He fled the U.S. and lived in exile for several years until he surrendered to U.S. Marshals in 1920. He served 10 months in prison. Johnson also faced allegations of domestic violence. Johnson died in a car crash in North Carolina in 1946. In the decades following his death, people began to speak out on the racist motivations of the charges that he faced. He was granted a presidential pardon in 2018. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. And if you want to send us a note on social media, you can do so on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at TDIHC Podcast. You can also send us a note via email at thisday at iHeartMedia.com. Thanks again for listening to the show, and we'll see you again tomorrow.